And good afternoon. You're listening to Ken Hudnall. This is the Ken Hudnall Show. Coming to you from our studios right here in exciting El Paso, Texas. Gateway to the Old West and the most haunted city in the country. Well, today's May 26th, 146th day of the year. 219 days remain till the year's over with. The, um... This is National Paper Airplane Day, National Buddha Day, Carb Day, European Neighbors Day, Georgia Independence Day. I didn't know Georgia was independent. Lived there for a good many years. Independence Day, Guyana, Chinese Blueberry Cheesecake Day, National Cherry Dessert Day, National Cooler Day. National Death Busters Day, National Don't Fry Day, National Heat Awareness Day, National Road Trip Day, National Sorry Day, National Title Track Day, well, Sally Ride Day, she was the first American uh, female astronaut, didn't survive the trip though. World Dracula Day, World Lindy Hop Day, and National Redhead Day. I'm in favor of that since I've got red hair. Alrighty. In the year 17, Germanicus celebrates a triumph in Rome for his victories over the Cheruski, the Chatti, and other German tribes west of the Elba. 451 A.D., the Battle of Avaray between Armenian rebels and the Sasanian Empire takes place. Sasanians defeat the Armenians militarily, but guarantee them freedom to openly practice Christianity. Another religious war. 946 A.D., King Edmund I of England is murdered by a thief whom he personally attacks while celebrating St. Augustine's Mass Day. 961, King Otto I elects his... uh, Six-year-old son Otto II is heir apparent and co-ruler of the East Frankish kingdom. He's crowned at Ock and him placed under the tutelage of his grandmother, Matilda. I wonder if she waltzed. That'd make her waltzing Matilda. 1135, Alfonso VII of Leon Castile is crowned in Leon Cathedral as Imperator Todias Hispania, Emperor of all of Spain. 1293. An earthquake strikes Kamakura, Kanagawa, Japan. Kills about 23,000 people. 1328, William of Ockham, the Franciscan minister general, Michael of Cecina, and two of the Franciscan leaders secretly leave Avignon, fearing a death sentence from Pope John XXII. That was back in the days when folks paid any attention to the Pope. 1538, Geneva. Expels John Calvin and his followers from the city. Calvin lives in exile in Strasbourg for the next three years. 1573, the Battle of Harlem Mermer, a neighbor engagement in the Dutch War of Independence. Harlem Mermer. Okay. 1637, the Pequot War. Combined English and Mohegan force under John Mason attacks a village in Connecticut. Massacres about 500 Pequots. 1644, Portuguese Restoration War. Portuguese and Spanish forces both claimed victory in the Battle of Montijo. 
1836, Battle of Akia. It's fought near the presence out of Tupelo, Mississippi. British and Chickasaw soldiers repel a French and Choctaw attack on the then Chickasaw village of Akia. 1783, Great Jubilee Day, held at uh, North Stratford, Connecticut, celebrates end of the fighting in the American Revolution. 1805, Napoleon Bonaparte assumes the title of King of Italy and is crowned with the Iron Crown of Lombardy in Milan Cathedral. That's the Gothic Cathedral in Milan. 1821, establishment of the Peloponnesian Senate by the Greek rebels. 1822, at least 113 people die in the Grew Church fire, the biggest fire disaster in Norway's history. 1864, Montana is organized as a U.S. territory. 1865, American Civil War. Confederate General Edmund Kirby Smith, commander of the Confederate Trans-Mississippi Division, is the last full general of the Confederate Army to surrender at Gallatin, Texas. Uh, 1868, the impeachment of Andrew Johnson ends with his acquittal by one vote. 1869, Boston University is chartered by the Commonwealth of Massachusetts. 1879, Russia and the U.K. signed the Treaty of Gandamak, establishing an Afghan state. 1896, Nicholas II is crowned as the last Tsar of Imperial Russia. Also on that date in 1896, Charles Dow publishes the first edition of the Dow Jones Industrial Average. 1900, Thousand Days War. The Colombian Conservative Party turns the tide of war in their favor with a victory against the Colombian Rebel Party in the Battle of Pelo Negro. 1903, Ramona de la Pen, the longest-running newspaper bound about uh, Romanians until World War II, is founded. 1908, the first major commercial oil strike in the Middle East is made at Mashhad Suleiman in southwest Persia. The rights to the resource are acquired by the Anglo-Persian Oil Company. 1917, several powerful tornadoes ripped through Illinois, including the city of Mattoon. 1918, Democratic Republic of Georgia is established. Now, when it says that it's a Democratic Republic or a People's Republic, you know it's socialist-communist. 1923, the first 24 hours in Le Mans is held and has since been run annually in June. 1927, the last Ford Model T rolls off the semi-blind after production run of 15,007,003 of those vehicles. 1936, in the House of Commons in Northern Ireland, Tommy Henderson begins speaking on the appropriation bill. By the time he sits down in the early hours of the following morning, he had spoken for 10 hours. Must have got his training in our Congress where they speak at length about nothing. In 1937, Walter Ruther and members of the United Auto Workers clashed with uh, Ford Motor Company security guards at the River Rouge Complex uh, complex in Dearborn, Michigan during the Battle of the Overpass. 1938, in the U.S., the House on American Activities Committee begins its first season. 1940, World War II, Operation Dynamo. Northern France, Allied forces began a massive evacuation from Dunkirk, France. 1940, World War II, the Siege of Calais ends with the surrender of the British and the French garrisons. On 1942, the Battle of Gazala, 
takes place. Now, for those not familiar with the Battle of Gazala, it was fought during the Western Desert Campaign of the Second World War, west of the port of Tobruk in Libya. Went from May 26 to June 21, 1942. Axis troops of the Panzer Army Africa, uh, commanded by uh, Rommel, which consisted of German and Italian units, fought the British Eighth Army. That was uh, General uh, Sir Claude Auchinleck, also Commander-in-Chief of the Middle East. That was mainly British Commonwealth Indian and Free French troops. Ninety forty-eight, Congress passes Public Law eighty five five seven that permanently establishes the Civil Air Patrol as an auxiliary of the Air Force. Nineteen sixty-six, British Guiana gains independence, becoming Guyana. Nineteen sixty-seven, the Beatles' Sergeant Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band is released. Nineteen sixty-eight, H. Duguran is. In Iceland. Traffic changes from driving on the left to driving on the right overnight. And don't you know there were wrecks that first day? 1969 Apollo program. Apollo 10 returns to Earth after a successful eight day test of all the components needed for the forthcoming first crewed moon landing. 1970 the Soviet Tupolev Tu 144 becomes the first commercial transport to exceed Mach 2. 1971, Bangladesh Liberation War. Pakistani Army slaughters uh, 71 Hindus in Barunga, Sathay, Bangladesh. 1972, the U.S. and Soviet Union signed the Anti-Ballistic Missile Treaty. 1981, Italian Prime Minister Arnaldo Floriani and his coalition cabinet resigned following a scandal over membership of the Pseudo-Masonic Lodge P2. A lot of scandals related to P2. 1981, an EA-6B Prowler crashes on the flight deck of the aircraft carrier Nimitz. Kills 14 crewmen and injures 45 others. 1983, the 7.8 Sea of Japan earthquake shakes northern Honshu with a maximum Mercalli intensity of 8, which is considered severe. Destructive tsunamis generated leaves about 100 people dead. 1986, the European community adopts the European flag. 1991, Zaviad Gamsakhurdia becomes the first elected president of the Republic of Georgia in the post-Soviet era. 1991, Lauda Air Flight 4 breaks apart in midair and crashes in the Voltoi National Park in the Sufan Buri province of uh, Thailand. All 223 on board are killed. 1998, Supreme Court of the U.S. rules New Jersey versus New York, Ellis Island, the historic gateway for millions of immigrants is mainly in the state of New Jersey, not New York. 1998 also saw the first National Sorry Day held in Australia. Reconciliation events are held nationally and attended by over a million people. They're sorry to the Aborigines from whom they took the country. Also in 1998, the Miat Mongolan Airlines Harbin Y-12 crashes near Erdinet, Okran province of Mongolia, kills 28. 
the tugboat, Robert Y. Love, collides with a support pier of Interstate 40 on the Arkansas River near Webber's Fall in Oklahoma. 14 are killed and 11, hundreds, 11 other people are injured. 2003, Ukrainian Mediterranean Airlines Flight 4230 crashes in the Turkish town of Baca. Killed 75. Um, 2004, Army veteran Terry Nichols is found guilty of 161 state murder charges for helping carry out the Oklahoma City bombing. 2008, severe flooding begins in eastern and southern China, ultimately caused 148 deaths and forced evacuation of 1.3 million people. 2020, protests triggered by the murder of George Floyd erupted in Minneapolis-St. Paul before becoming widespread across the U.S. and around the world. Now, what I found interesting is there was no question he was a criminal. There was no question he was high and fighting. But the officers were prosecuted for doing their job. 2021, 10 people were killed in a shooting at a VTA rail yard in San Jose, California. Well, we've been talking over the last um, few shows about the fact that there are mummies in uh, the American West. Also, vampires. Now, we're going to go back to March 14, 1981. Mineral Point. We're going to talk about the Mineral Point Vampire. Now, on this particular night, police responded to reports of a strange-looking man haunting the Graceland Cemetery. According to the witness testimony of one officer by the name of John Pepper, and he was not a member of Sergeant Pepper's band, by the way. He saw what he described as a huge person wearing a black cape with a white-painted face. He stood about six foot five, and he was ugly. In other words, he encountered a classic vampire from the Hollywood Holler movie from the days of Bella Lugosi and Christopher Lee. When the officer asked the man what he was doing in the cemetery, he turned and ran. Now, Pepper chased him, but he couldn't catch him and watched as this individual cleared a four-foot fence and ran into an adjacent cow pasture where Angus bulls were grazing. Now, after the report went public, Wisconsin town of Mineral Point, because Mineral Point is in Wisconsin, but wild rumors of vampires running around. And as winter turned to spring, sightings of the vampire continued. Now, after this flap of sightings dissipated, they resumed over 20 years later in the early 2000s with many more vampire sightings. Most terrifying sighting of all occurred along a jetty in 2008. A uh, young couple were fishing at the uh, Luden Lake, heard something crawling underneath the jetty that they were sitting on. The young man aimed his flashlight at the boards beneath his feet and saw the vampire looking back at him. He was crawling underneath the jetty. Well, the couple ran, got in their car with the vampire in hot pursuit, and they got out of there. Now, 
Mineral Point is an old mining settlement with Cornish roots, so I guess you could say it's something of an appropriate home for a vampire. And as it turns out, the vampire had been lurking for much longer than initially thought, and sightings had begun back in the mid-1800s, when it was known under the name of the Ridgeway Phantom. Ridgeway's an area located between Mineral Point and Blue Mounds, so it's not all that far away. Ridgeway sported a variety of paranormal activity, including uh, headless ghosts and spook lights, but uh, of course the most famous was always the Ridgeway Phantom. The Phantom liked to prey on lone travelers going through the woods at night, but uh, then again, that's always the story. More specifically, Ridgeway Phantom haunted what was called the Old Military Road, which was right near the little town of Pokerville in Iowa County. Haunted a 25-foot stretch of the road that spanned from Pokerville to Dodgeville, both of which were mining communities, um, just like uh, Mineral Point. Now, the area boasted no less than a dozen saloons, if not more. Ridgeway in particular was a wide spot with numerous fights and robberies and murders in the area for some unknown reason. Locals tied the origins of Ridgeway Phantom to the murder of two teenage boys at McKillop's Saloon in 1840. Now, the boys' names, unfortunately, have been lost to history, but they were 14 and 15 years old. The younger boy was tossed into a fireplace by some uh, saloon goers, and the other one froze to death outside as he ran. So the boys died by, I guess you could say, fire and ice. And somehow the Ridgeway Phantom arose from the killings and began to haunt that area soon after that. Well, rather than looking at the different ghosts as separate entities, local lore said they were all the, the same shape-shifting phantom. And that's how the more recent Mineral Point Vampire ties in. People seem to think it's the Ridgeway Phantom come back. And if, if you follow the philosophy laid out by the immortal John Keel, he could be correct. Now another point of interest is the, uh, the Mothman seen in 1967 in Point Pleasant, West Virginia. And Point Pleasant was besieged not just by the, the strange winged humanoid known as Mothman, but by ghosts and UFOs and men in black. I mean, it looked like there was a something weird behind every bush. And due to all this, John Keel began to speculate that Mothman and his kin might be a form of the older trickster myth, uh, being beyond our understanding, and either couldn't or wouldn't communicate in a normal way. So he called these modern-era tricksters ultra-terrestrials. The idea being that these neo-tricksters shape-shifted into a form that a witness of the era would recognize. For example, in 19th century Ireland, ultra-terrestrials might take the form of fairies. 20th century America, they might appear as aliens, or even as members of Congress. So maybe the trickster of Iowa County, Wisconsin, took on various forms over the years, starting with the spook known as the Ridgeway Phantom and eventually giving itself a, a makeover into something uh, that may have stepped out of a Hollywood uh, vampire movie. And the being did have the behavior of a trickster, 
all the way back to the mid-19th century. Going to a website called the W-File. He ranged the highway and the surrounding farmlands, playing his mischievous and harmful pranks on travelers and inhabitants alike. And he was that most exasperating of phantoms, the practical joker, one who shamelessly exploited his obvious advantage, playing, played according to no rules whatsoever, and generally turned out to be a royal pain in the patoot. For instance, according to Lord, the invisible specter joined in one of Pokerville's many poker games one night. The uh, the miners were playing poker with a fourth chair left empty. But nobody knew was an invisible figure it was sitting in it. One of the men won a full pot and went to grab the winnings, but the cards suddenly began to shuffle themselves for the next round as old invisible hands had picked them up. And suddenly a strange man materialized in the fourth seat. His hat pulled down over his face to conceal it. Well, for whatever reason, the three men let the stranger play with them. Only odd thing happened to the cards he dealt. After picking up a card, it would instantly leave that person's hand and fly around the room. Soon a whole bunch of the cards were flying around the room in a circle. And at that point, the miners grabbed their money and ran. And there were a number of occasions where the ghost actually hit out at people with a switch. Must have known my grandmother. She loved the switch. One night, two Pokerville men were carrying a plank across her shoulders down the road. And a being dressed in white jumped out of the bushes and jumped on the plank and began to whip the two men with the switch. Well, they, they of course, ran. I guess they would drop the plank. I mean, I would have. And eventually, the, the being disappeared. Then there's another story told by a man named John Riley. He's getting ready to take his wagon down the old military road. And afraid of the ghost, he went inside to get a drink to kind of get some Dutch courage, so to speak. When he came back, his oxen were suddenly hitched to the rear of the wagon. And in the distance, he could see what he was sure was the ghost walking away. After a while, all the area's misfortunes are blamed on the Ridgeway Phantom. I mean, you could probably write a, a book just on the Ridgeway Phantom and some of his escapades. According to at least one source, the Ridgeway Phantom was seen in flaps about 40 years apart, starting in the 1840s, again in the 1890s, the 1930s, and the 1970s. Well, the Mineral Point Vampire, however, seems a bit more impatient, so to speak. It pops up every 10 years for a while as opposed to every 40. So you have to ask yourself, what purpose do these strange appearances serve? Do they just enjoy um, playing jokes on the more primitive human race, or is there something more behind their seemingly random appearances? John Keel believes that ultra-terrestrials, as he calls them, serves as omens preceding disaster, such as in the Mothman's case, where the Silver Bridge collapsed. South America glowing terror bird preceded a great earthquake in Peru in 1868. Well, as near as anybody can tell, the Ridgeway Phantom never uh, was associated with any major catastrophe or natural disaster. But those from the, what you might call the John Keel School of Ultra Terrestrials point out that the uh, 
first sighting of the Mineral Point Vampire in March of eighteen of 1981 did precede the assassination attempt on President Reagan later that month. Maybe there's a relationship. Maybe not. Well, from Wisconsin, let's go to uh, Colorado. Williams Canyon, a few miles northwest of Colorado Springs. That's where you'll find the Cave of the Winds, one of the most popular tourist attractions in Colorado even today. According to local lore, that cave was used as a ceremonial spot for the Ute and Apache and might even have served as an entrance to the underworld, according to the Ute. And the Apache believed the cavern was home to the great spirit of the wind. Supposedly, two boys... John and George Pickett found the entrance to the cave in 1880 and exploration took place in June of that year and it was uh, 1881 that the cave's first great promoter arrived George Washington Snyder now he was a stonecutter from Ohio who found and explored a different section of the cave in 1881 and he labeled his New Discovery Canopy Hall, due to its immense size, it was about 200 feet long and housed thousands of stalactites and stalagmites. Snyder saw the possibilities of a major tourist attraction and bought the cave land from Frank Hemingway on January 29, 1881. Unfortunately for Snyder, soon after making his discovery public, hordes of people descended into the cave to strip away many of the stalactites. Eventually, his investment did pay off, though, and not only did he operate the Cave of the Winds with a partner, but also a newly discovered cave he called Manitou Grand Caverns. Now, tours were conducted by Lantern in those days, and on some occasions, Snyder even held parties in the caverns. Through the darkness of the caves, he took delight in finding ways to frighten his customers. And this is actually what led to the cavern's notoriety and success. And when business began to lag, he got the idea to put a mummy inside the cavern. His brother worked at a nearby quarry. He just happened to dig up three mummies, which Snyder speculated were probably the bodies of of uh, members of the Ute tribe. Though it took days of begging, he finally got his brother to sell him one of the mummies for a huge sum of $5, which was no small amount in those days. Snyder pretended uh, that the mummy was out of a very important ute and would hide it within the cave. At just the right moment, he'd surprise tourists with the mummy to get a good scare out of them. Well, this trick looked worked like a charm, and his business was booming. After a few months, he was well aware the word had gotten out as to whereabouts the mummy was hidden in the cave. So that, I guess you could say, lessened the surprise, so to speak. So he endeavored to hide the mummy in a new spot as a way of surprising a group of college athletes that had booked a tour. But amazingly, when he went to get the mummy, it was gone. Now, Snyder was the only one who had access to the cavern, and the entrance was locked by a locked door, and only Snyder had the key. And he had checked on the mummy the day before, and it was still there. So you have to wonder where the mummy went probably didn't get up and walk out on its own, but then again, 
Well, supposedly the Ute Native American tribe considered a cavern to be an entrance to the underworld. One legend even exists that a portal would open within the cave that allowed the spirits of the dead to pass to and fro. So maybe the mummy went into the portal and went to the underworld where it belonged. Well, whatever may have happened to the mummy, mundane or supernatural, was only one of many things that occurred. Tour guides reported seeing people in the group tours that seemed to be dressed in the styles of the 19th century. These same people weren't present at the beginning of the tour and disappeared by the end of it. Spook lights have also been seen inside the cave, and one of the ghosts is even thought to be Snyder himself, along with his wife. In other words, without any assistance from anybody, the cave, the caverns are haunted. Interestingly enough, on the night that Snyder died in 1921, a severe lightning storm hit the valley, produced a flood so intense it caused the lock slide that sealed off the entrance to Snyder's cave. It stayed sealed for 20, excuse me, for 30 years during the process of reopening. And even after that, the cave was plagued with bad luck, everything from odd lawsuits to freak accidents to even the death of participants. And odder yet, the cave was suddenly infested with grasshoppers and earthworms. And in a number of cases, folks disappeared into the caves and never came out. Due to the caves allegedly being the site of many Native American rituals, most people assume the bad luck is attributed to that, and it's thought that the mummy played a part as well. Well, from uh, Colorado, let's go to the great state of Kentucky. Now, in the same way that Nebraska is a strange place to find a vampire, you might think Kentucky is a strange place to find a werewolf. Early 1800s, the legend of Nils Wills from the Red River Gorge area was um, making the rounds. Supposedly, Wills was the first settler in that area of Kentucky and in the process befriended several Cherokee hunters. When Wills went out hunting one day, he had an accident, a serious accident. On top of a high cliff, he stumbled and fell to what should have been his death. Instead, he was found in the process of dying by some of his Cherokee friends, and they brought him back to their tribe and asked the tribal elders if they could help. Well, the elders didn't know a way to help. There was something called the wolf gift. Strange ritual, the details which we don't know today. Well, Wolves woke up alive and well the next morning, according to the story, and more than that, his wounds are completely healed. But like most good fairy tales, the this gift came with a terrible curse. From that day forward, Wills was essentially a Cherokee version of a skinwalker. Among the Cherokee was called a limican. But unlike most Native American skinwalkers, which induce their transformation willingly, the limican changed from man to wolf involuntarily. Well, holding to the Christian view of the fact that werewolves were evil, Wills was mortified. And more than that, he was enraged. Now, the Cherokees, of course, didn't understand. To them, it was a gift, and 
but to Wills it was a, a curse. He made it his mission to kill all the tribal elders and members who had inflicted this evil curse on him. And once he killed them, he even hunted down their families. I mean, he was P.O.'d. Allegedly, he killed any Native American he came in contact with until his own death in 1810. Or maybe, I guess I should say, his presumed death. To this day, when hikers go missing, or half-eaten human remains are discovered, uh, the blame is put on the Will's werewolf. Now, as recently as November 2015, something akin to the Will's werewolf was spotted in Red River Gorge by campers. Now, the beast was never clearly seen, and the witnesses observed only two red eyes. And, of course, the devil is in the details, and does apply to the noises the creature made, which the witnesses said sounded like a large man being slaughtered combined with a wolf. Well, leaving the Will's werewolf behind in Red River Gorge, let's go to an area called the Land Between the Lakes. Now, it's named that because it's located between two large lakes, Lake Barkley and Kentucky Lake. It's been the haunt of a seven-foot-tall werewolf known as the Beast of the Land Between the Lakes for generations. Two iterations of the legend, one European, the other Native American. European legend goes that an immigrant family from Europe came to America in the early 1800s to settle the land between the lakes. A man supposedly carried a genetic disease he had passed down to his children. This mysterious condition caused the family to go crazy after nightfall. So they secluded themselves from the rest of the world. The children didn't go to school. They were homeschooled, I guess. Many years later, in the 1900s, their homestead was found abandoned. I mean, there were no dead bodies, so the assumption was everybody just left. Were they once a mystery, but some think collectively they're the mysterious beast in the land between the lakes. As for the other legend, it centered around a Chickasaw shaman who could shapeshift into a wolf. He was um, accused by his fellow tribesmen using his powers for evil and cast out into the wilderness. But even casting him out wasn't enough, for some of his tribal felt he should have been killed. Well, not enough Chickasaws uh, agreed to help hunt down their old shaman. Uh, the tribesmen uncharacteristically solicited help from a drunken Anglo settlers within a nearby saloon. Well, the combined group went out into the wild and shot the shaman in wolf form, and in his dying moment he cursed the men and vowed to return to torment him. Well, sir, sure enough, soon after, strange howls emanated from the woods, and hunters mysteriously disappeared, and bison were mutilated by some hideous predator. Stranger still. Livestock was occasionally discovered killed but not eaten, which was uncharacteristic of your average predator. A few times animals were found with their legs torn out of their sockets, something else unnatural, known predator, wouldn't have the strength to accomplish. Well, eventually settlers caught a glimpse of a strange creature that resembled a wolf walking upright on two legs. Tails spread of families huddling inside their cabins in fear as they listened to the creature walk across their porch. And the next morning, they would find deep gouges or claw marks in the wood. One old-timer claimed it jumped out of one of the horse stalls in front of him one night, causing him to wet his overalls. Another old-timer and his wife claimed to see it get tangled in chicken wire while trying to get into their chicken coop. I bet he had some foul things to say. Other stories aren't so humorous, though. 
more recent one from the 1980s claims that a murdered family was found inside their camper. Well, the parents were found in the camper. The child was found half feet and high up in a tree. And of course, if you're wondering why you don't hear the, this story such as this in the news, supposedly covered up by the local government uh, for fear of hurting local tourism, just as they did in the movie Jaws. But if towns have learned anything from places like Roswell, New Mexico, and Point Pleasant, West Virginia, they ought to know that stories like this tend to have the exact opposite on tourism. You know, if you're familiar with the writings of Charles Fort, he came up with all kinds of bizarre, off-the-wall, uh, non-fiction incidents. But one thing that's a little rare in Fortean circles are stories of invisible people. One reason for that may be if they're invisible, how are you going to know they're there? Just like the, uh, the Phantom who played poker and nobody could see him until he uh, appeared in the chair. And we're not talking about unseen ghosts and specters, but flesh-and-blood human beings that are invisible to the naked eye. Just like the title character of the book uh, by H.G. Wells. Well, believe it or not, there's one notable story of such a being which was cited, uh, so to speak, at 9.30 p.m. in New York City in the summer of 1870. Now, this predates the H.G. Wells classic by a good many years. According to the Providence Morning Herald, um, and the story is dated June 3rd, 1870, it said the New York papers are exercised over the mysterious disappearance of a man who was first noticed at about half past nine o'clock Monday evening at the corner of 27th Street and 8th Avenue. When he was seen, he was actually divesting himself of his clothing. And he did it with a rapidity that seemed the work of magic. Tore off his coat and pantaloons and vest and hat and flung him on the sidewalk and then vanished. Now the street was clear outed, as it usually is in New York City, but nobody noticed which way he went. And it really seemed as if a human being had been dissolved into nothingness, leaving nothing but his clothes to prove he ever existed. Even the policeman, as usual late on all such occasions, could make nothing of the affair, and after diligently searching the sewers and some excavations for buildings in the neighborhood without result, contented themselves with carrying the abandoned clothes at a station house. Well... There's a similar, though unrelated, uh, story that was told by Ambrose Bierce about the man who um, came from 1854. A man crossed his field and vanished into thin air. Now, even though it took place in 1854, the story was published as a genuine news item for the first time in 1888. Um, now, the New York story that I mentioned earlier is different from Bierce's story when the subject vanishes clothes and all under thin air the New York story is very much like a scene from the Invisible Man movie of 1933 where the title character disrobes into nothingness in the film's best remembered scene 
Well, it turns out that Wells' Invisible Man was partly influenced by the second book of Plato's Republic. In that particular book, Glaucon told of the legend of the Ring of Guides, which can make a man uh, turn invisible. And when he turned invisible, the man could act with impunity and go about among men with the powers of a god. So the question becomes, was the 1870 New York Times news, or the New York newspaper story inspired by Plato's Republic, or it could have been a genuine tale of a real invisible man? Nobody's too sure, and nobody apparently saw the, uh, any sign of the invisible man later. Well, if you grew up with comic books as I did, you're familiar with the, uh, the Human Torch from the Fantastic Four. Well, that's known as pyrokinesis. It's the psychic ability of a human being to create and control fire with the mind. And one of the most famous people to have this ability was found in the 1880s. A. William Underwood was an African-American man from Paw Paw, Michigan. He was in his late 20s, and he became famous for his purported ability to start fires with his mouth. Now, I've seen people start fights with their mouth. January of 1882, a local doctor named Dr. L.C. Woodman wrote about Underwood in the Michigan Medical News. He said, I have a singular phenomenon in the shape of a young man living here that I've studied with much interest and I'm satisfied his peculiar power demonstrates that electricity is a nerve force beyond dispute. His name is William Underwood. He's 27 and his gift is that of generating fire through the medium of his breath. Assisted by manipulations with his hands, he'll take somebody's handkerchief and hold it to his mouth and rub it vigorously with his hands while breathing on it and immediately it bursts into flames and burns until it's consumed. Now, Charles Fort would probably have said that Underwood had supernatural abilities, but skeptics said that Underwood had f hid phosphorus in his mouth, which he spat onto the handkerchief and ignited through friction. I couldn't find any other stories about uh, Mr. Underwood. Another let's fire started there was psychic Daniel Dungus Holm, who was supposedly... Uh, he could levitate. In addition to Mr. Holm and Mr. Underwood, there were other lesser-known individuals with similar powers, such as Willie Bra, a 12-year-old boy from California who had a strange affliction. Unlike Underwood and Holm, he wasn't able to control his abilities, and his abilities seemed much more powerful than those of the other two men. His saga began in October 8, 1886, and it was talked about in the Fresno Republican. Now, Turlock, California, this is from the story, comes to the front with the most peculiar mystery. Seems that a 12-year-old boy, Willie Braw, that's B-R-O-U-G-H, living near Turlock, apparently sets fire to objects by his glance. On last Sunday, October 3rd, the phenomenon was first discovered and the destruction of $9,000 worth of property by fires laid to his charge, or his, his eyes, so to speak. Recently been expelled from Madison School near Turlock on account of this wonderful ability. After Sunday's fire, Brawl's family refused to have anything to do with the boy, believing him to be possessed by a devil. 
He was taken in by a farmer and sent to school. First day of school, there were five fires in the school, one in the center of the ceiling, one in the teacher's desk, one in the teacher's wardrobe, and two on the wall. And the boy is the one that discovered all of them and cried from fright. Well, the trustees took a dim view of this, and they got together and expelled him that same night. One Turnlock insurance agency has given notice he'll cancel all the policies on property occupied by the boy. They wrote to Turlock's in a furor of excitement about this mystery. Now, there was another account published in the Review and Herald on October 26, 1886. According to this story, Willie Brawl, boy living with his parents near Turlock, is reported to be so charged with electricity that the snapping of his fingers causes sparks to fly. It's also stated that hay and straw and wallpaper and other light substances burst into flames at a mere glance from the boy, and he'd been sent away from school owing to fires breaking out in the structure in a mysterious manner. The insurance agent will take no further risk on property in the neighborhood as long as Willie remains. And, in actuality, due to the excitement, Willie and his father moved to the opposite side of the San Joaquin River to stay with relatives. That's according to the... Electrical Review from October 30th, 1886. According to that story, popular excitement's been so great since the story of the sinister power of Master Bra has circulated, the father has felt impelled to move away and has gone to reside on the other side of the San Joaquin River, taking refuge with his family in a cottage in the cottonwood uh, timber, long away from the village or railroad. Correspondent found him there. He denied his son he caused fires, but admitted he told him that when lying in bed at night, he saw sparks flying about him. Now, Willie's an extremely nervous boy, 11 years old, with a largely developed head. In a melancholy way, he told the correspondent he didn't know how the mysterious fires occurred, but said he saw sparks about his own body at night. A.M. Coleman, who keeps a school in Mercer County in which the alarm first began, describes how five fires broke out one afternoon different parts of the schoolhouse, being caused by no visible agency. And other scholars were hastily dismissed, but Willie Brawl was detained. A few minutes later, he fixed his eyes on a hay shed a few yards away and called the teacher's attention to the fact that smoke came from the hay shed. Very soon, it was in full um, blaze. The teacher forbid him to come to school anymore and didn't believe him guilty of arson, but was inclined to think he's a victim of supernatural agencies. On the previous Sunday, 11 mysterious blazes broke out in the house of William's father. One broke out at a corner of the roof, another in some bedding in the middle of the floor, and a third uh, charred grain sacks in the barn. Well, they looked at the straw stack nearby, and the flames came out of the top. The mother and the boys prostrated with excitement and anxiety. And then the Baltimore underwriter wrote about it November 5, 1886. He said, California's latest sensation is a boy of 12 who has an eye that sets fire to every object he looks at, is a, and it's a very dangerous product. It's not surprising to learn this incendiary optic causes a current exp, uh, expulsion from a Stockton school, but it's queer in this age to find rather than mischief the accepted explanation of the tricks of a bad youngster. Mysterious fires have somehow sometimes puzzled uh, eastern cities, but have finally been traced to a boy's hands rather than his visual organs. The poet speaks metaphorically of fire in each eye, but Master Willie Brawl's exploits will land him sooner in jail than in a dime museum. And certainly that is um, a possibility. Now, Willie left the area and after that vanished from the newspapers. 
But it wasn't the end of the Willie Brown saga. Oh, no. Luckily for us, an anthropologist and naturalist from the um, Sequoia Parks uh, Conservancy, Tim Christensen, took it upon himself to collect oral histories in the area in the 1960s. One man identified only as Roy and associated with the Masonic Lodge of Wilsonia brought up Willie Brown to Christensen. Ron knew Brown as an adult when he worked in the uh, Southern Sierra Nevada lumber camps, and the two men became close enough friends that Willie admitted his secret past to Roy, notably he had a strange, uncontrollability to start fires. On a fateful day in Millwood on June 2, 1905, the Black Powder Storage Building of Camp 4 of the Sanger Lumber Company exploded for no discernible reason. However, Willie didn't show up for work the next day. Roy knew something had happened. And indeed, Willie Brown was never seen again. So the question was, was he consumed in the fire of his own making, or did he simply skip town? Well, whatever his fate might have been, the story about Willie and his unusual abilities appeared to be true, as the odds of an old man in the 1960s making up a bizarre story based on an obscure series of newspaper articles from the 1880s does not really seem likely. Well... Let's talk about the curse of the assassin's mummy. Well, history tells us that on April 14, 1865, an actor named John Wilkes Booth assassinated Abraham Lincoln during a play at Fort Theater. And in that case, history would be correct. Well, where history becomes uncertain is discussing Booth's death. According to history, Booth fled on horseback toward uh, southern Maryland. Twelve days later, he's found in a barn on a farm in rural North Virginia. And there he was shot through the neck and killed. But, much like the Western outlaws, Butch Cassidy, Billy the Kid, and Jesse James, there are stories that the wrong man was killed and Booth actually escaped. But theories abound as to why this happened, some alleging it was a government-endorsed conspiracy to fake Booth's death, that he's not ashamed for not being able to apprehend him or because the government had, in fact, condoned the assassination, and there are a number of stories about that. Whatever the case, Booth supposedly took on the alien of John's, alias of John St. Helen and moved to Texas, first settling near Glen Rose before moving to Granbury, where he worked as a bartender. 1877 in Granbury, St. Helen mistakenly believed he was dying. On his deathbed, he confessed to a young lawyer he'd worked with in the past, Finnish Bates, who was, a, a, I understand, is Kathy Bates' father, that he was, in fact, John Wilkes Booth. However, he, did, he pulled through and didn't die, and so he left Granbury. But before he did, he explained to Bates it was President Johnson himself who'd authorized Lincoln's assassination. And Johnson gave Booth a special password, allowing him to escape from authorities who were in on the plot. The man shot in the barn was actually a random fugitive who was later passed off as Booth so the real presidential assassin could get away. Well, many years after his disappearance from Granbury, Booth, or St. Helen, uh, resurfaced in the newspapers under the alias of David George. And Bates happened to read about the death of George who committed suicide in Eden, Oklahoma, January 13, 1903. What caught Bates's eye in the story was the detail that George claimed to be John Wilkes Booth. According to the article, George attempted suicide nine months earlier when he again thought he was dying, and he confessed to the wife of a local Methodist preacher that he was not David Elihu George. He's the one who killed the best man that ever lived. I'm J. Wilkes Booth. 
Well, though the suicide attempt nine months earlier in 1902 failed, his second attempt didn't. He'd actually ingested a large amount of arsenic, which in turn also mummified his uh, body. Now, Bates rushed to Enid when he read the article in hopes of procuring Booth's mummified body. When he arrived, the body had been further mummified thanks to the embalming fluid used by W.B. Penniman at his mortuary and furniture shop. However, Penniman himself wanted to use the unclean body as an attraction for his shop and refused to let Bates have it. For several years, Booth's mummified corpse and now a glass eye sat on the porch of a Penniman store reading a newspaper. Bates found another way to exploit the wild story by writing a book, Escape and Suicide of John Wilkes Booth. It came out in 1907. About that same time, Bates did manage to finally get the corpse himself. He did so with the help of an Oklahoma judge who thought Bates would actually bury the body since it was a former client of his. Instead, Bates went out to notorious mummy to state fairs and carnivals. In his article on the mummy for History.com, Christopher Klein uh, put it best when he wrote The Mummy became a freak show mirror image to the solemn funeral train procession taken by Lincoln's embalmed body in the weeks after the assassination. And like any good mummy, this one also had a curse. The first inclination of the Booth Mummy's curse came when a uh, circus train transporting the body crashed on its way to San Diego in 1920. Eight people died, along with many of the so-called freak show animals on the train. Bates himself died not long after that, and some like to claim it was due to the ridicule he suffered from writing the book. At this point, the so-called Carnival King of the Southwest, William Evans, bought the mummy from Bates' wood and began exhibit, exhibiting it across the country, as Bates had done. Before buying it outright, Evans had merely been renting it from Bates. Mummy eventually led to his financial ruin, and Evans died when he was shot in a Chicago holdup in 1933. Well, now we go to the end of the day show. We've also come to the end of the week. We'll talk more about mysterious mummies and curses and what have you when we come back on Monday. Until then, this is Ken Hudnall for the Ken Hudnall Show saying have a truly great evening.